Hello and welcome to my talk. This is a podcast series brought to you by ISS Market Intelligence. And uh, this podcast is dedicated to global coverage of developments in the retail financial services industry with a uh, focus on asset and wealth management, uh, life insurance, banking, both the manufacturing and the distribution sides of the business. The mission of this podcast or the genesis, and for those of you just joining us for the first time, this is only a second one in the series, so we're still polishing all of this, but um, at um, ISS Market Intelligence, uh, for better or worse, we have been uh, uh, observing and measuring uh, trends in, um, uh, in the asset wealth management uh, business. Um, we remain uh, very passionate about um, exploring and benchmarking developments in this business. And very often we find, find ourselves debating a lot of the topics and trends in the business. We thought it would be um, a lot of fun and hopefully fun for you to basically join our internal debate and, uh, and uh, think through some of the ideas that are coming to the market. Um, so in each episode, uh, we examine topical issues and ideas that have just kind of entered our sphere of interest um, and the trends that are shaping the global retail financial services marketplace. My name is uh, Goshka Folda, and I will be your host for the series. I'm the global head of research at ISS Market Intelligence, and I'm particularly pleased today to be joined uh, by my colleague, Carlos Cardone, who is an executive uh, director at um, ISS Market Intelligence. Um, Carlos leads Canadian product and household balance sheet research at Investor Economics, which is a unit uh, of ISS Market Intelligence that delivers thought leadership and fact-based measurement and analysis of Canada's retail financial services and wealth management industry. Um, welcome, Carlos. Thank you. And today, uh, I asked Carlos to join us because, um, uh, again, for those of you familiar with uh, investor economics work, over the past 30 plus years, we have launched many new services and we um, uh, research advisory services and we tend to uh, try to uh, uh, jump on trends and ideas pretty quickly and measure them. And most recently, Carlos uh, and his team launched, uh, launched the inaugural issue of the ISS Market Intelligence uh, um, ESG Advisory Service. Um, the inaugural issue came in two parts, um, um, a pretty massive report, and it takes a, an in-depth look at the ESG retail investment um, fund space in Canada, as well as um, in select other major regions um, around the globe. So with that, uh, Carlos, uh, it's uh, it's uh, almost, I would say, an, an encyclopedic type of work, uh, the initial report. Um, uh, can you tell us a little bit uh, about how you approach uh, this process and how you're uh, able, uh, together with your team, to um, come uh, at this topic, uh, which is clearly around to many of our listeners, um, uh, from such a variety of perspectives? 
Thank you, uh, Goshka. And yes, yeah, you're you're correct. I think we ended up with a product uh, that's a little bit longer than we originally contemplated. We uh, kind of started this process uh, almost thinking about uh, the potential to writing a, 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 a research feature, like a lead story kind of research feature in one of our reports and everything. But of course, we started to investigate everything that was happening in connection with ESG. And uh, very, very quickly, we decided that uh, we needed certainly a little bit more content. But in putting this together, we tried to do two things uh, in particular. One was to provide, uh, as, of course, as, as is usually the case with our research, uh, to provide uh, evidence, fact-based um, uh, research in terms of what's happening um, uh, in connection with ESG from multiple lenses, but taking into account that the audience, uh, for the most part, will be mainly connected to the asset management uh, side of things, if not directly as a manager, uh, uh, maybe as a product distributor or, or so on. But good part of what we did was only connected to um, uh, ESG products in uh, in general. And uh, number two, the, only, the other thing that we tried to do, of course, there's quite a lot of um, uh, uh, original research and, uh, and evidence in this uh, report. But in many cases, when reviewing certain topics, we sort of went back and uh, examined what's available in, uh, in terms of overall research, what kind of uh, uh, um, uh, information, what uh, uh, kind of analysis uh, has been put together in certain topics. Uh, we didn't want to kind of reinvent the wheel in connection with uh, you know, many of the topics that we were touching on. And the report, uh, as you mentioned, is uh, certainly large and comprehensive. It's a bit of an overview, uh, very quick overview of the topic itself and why ESG has been trending more recently. And then we started to review one by one some of the uh, challenges, if anything, that ESG has been uh, experiencing out there in terms of adoption over time uh, right, I think that there's uh, uh, still uh, uh, there, and um, uh, we examine to what extent um, uh, the advisor community and beyond, potentially also clients, maybe to some extent, believe that there's a bit of a trade-off between investment performance and ESG enablement. In some cases, uh, uh, you know that could have been the case. Um, uh, in certain market cycles, uh, it, it was not the case during the pandemic. Uh, you know, could that be the case again? These are the kind of questions that the report tries to uh, to answer in connection with the um, uh, with the topic itself, with the products that are available, with the product development cycle, and then very quickly after uh, establishing some of these um, uh, uh, kind of basic uh, um, uh, topics and ideas, we moved into um, what we believe is the, uh, the, the, the trend towards productization of ESG strategies. Who's doing what? And why are companies doing uh, what they're doing? And what are the expectations in terms of um, advisor adoption, in terms of client demand? Uh, what are companies planning in terms of wholesaling training, uh, in terms of uh, uh, marketing efforts, in terms of overall availability? How do they see the long-term prospect of, uh, of these products? How do they evaluate these products at the light of, for example, income replacement strategies, payout, 
uh, cycle and uh, and so on. There's uh, there's quite a lot of uh, you know different topics, if anything, covered in connection with this uh, research. But again, I think the you know the, the 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 line that we try to keep at all times was the uh, uh, the uh, asset management investment management view in connection with all of these. You know, there, there are many topics out there connected to ESG, but at the end of the day, the report tries to answer what is it that, that matters to um, uh, asset managers and why this topic, what does this topic look like at the light of what an asset manager has to do to bring an ESG product to fruition and, uh, and so on. Yes, thank you, Carlos. And uh, I uh, I completely agree with you. I think that this the report is unique in that it takes that and and in particular retail asset manager perspective and almost provides a bit of a blueprint. Uh, I should be cautious about how I say that, but a bit of a kind of a at, at least the steps to think through to get you to a product, but also to a distribution strategy that can work. Um, I would be interested in you telling us a little bit more because I think this is a really big topic. Um, um, you know, uh, clearly a, a, a little bit about the product development cycle, but then we'll move to the distribution strategy. Because um, even though, um, and again, uh, the report and uh, uh, kind of drills in depth into the almost the history of responsible and ESG investing, um, and really that 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 uh, front flanks of institutional um, uh, asset owners. And and asset managers really driving the trend for a very long time and now retail coming a bit later. But um, what can you tell us um, from the perspective of the product development, for example, on the ESG front in, in Canada um, on the retail side? What do you think are important, uh, some important things that you learned about uh, the product development uh, from it's, that perspective? It's interesting. Yeah, it's a very interesting question. And I'll tell you that uh, the learnings uh, are uh, very and uh, you know uh, it's highly dependent on the type of companies we examined and talked to we actually uh, spoke with executives in in different companies uh, some very large banks some life insurance companies some ETF providers some independent type of fund manufacturers we talked to uh, quite a few firms to to understand exactly what was happening and why and why they were moving towards ESG investing in many cases with very little um, uh, expertise, internal expertise uh, 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 on, on the topic. As you know very well, I think that probably with the exception of Europe, uh, finding even people with extensive expertise in the uh, ESG topic is not very easy. It's not, uh, they're not abundant. Uh, and you know, in part because of this is something that is uh, uh, to a great extent uh, uh, shaping um, uh, in, in more recent years. And uh, there are multiple reasons why uh, companies have been moving in that, uh, in that direction. Uh, a very common answer to why is this happening now? Why are you introducing uh, ESG products and what are you doing beyond the specific ESG products was that companies that have some institutional business in many cases were uh, required by these uh, institutional clients to provide guidance and to provide information about their uh, ESG policies, 
integration and how they uh, uh, they dealt with the with the topic. And in many cases, they found themselves in in a situation where they were making uh, changes to the mandates um, uh, because of that, and that was kind of created a bit of a spillover effect into the retail products. So that was uh, uh, fairly common. There were quite a few companies actually citing that as um, uh, you know something that was almost happening to them. I think more than uh, initiated by uh, by the company. But then, of course, uh, with more talk about ESG mandates and uh, and all of that, there were many companies out there that were introducing uh, uh, products with specific ESG um, uh, uh, mandates, uh, ESG as part of the investment objective, right? Uh, in some cases, companies were deciding to go entirely thematic. In some cases, companies were doing <clears throat> broad integration within uh, uh, their mandates and uh, and all of that. We found a little bit of everything. We found companies that wanted to kind of create a very extensive menu of options with um, uh, multiple uh, you know productized uh, uh, ideas all the way from. Uh, ETFs to um, uh, individual mutual funds to uh, fun of fun type of wrappers and asset allocations that integrate all these products together into a rebalanced, uh, constantly rebalanced portfolio and so on, all the way from uh, from there to companies that were doing something quite minimalistic, I would suggest, uh, going for some very thematic, specific strategies connected to uh, one or two topics, like for example, uh, clean water, uh, was something that came up um, uh, uh, several times. Um, uh, of course, not the only one. Energy is a very, very common topic too, um, but not necessarily the broader integration into uh, existing mandates. Now, the broader integration into mandates is something that to a great extent, and this is particularly true for mid-sized to larger companies, um, is happening. Uh, and it's happening, I would suggest, maybe uh, in parallel, but not necessarily or entirely connected to the trend towards ESG-specific products, right? Aside from the trend towards uh, a very specific thematic uh, type of ESG product, in addition to that, I would say, there's also a trend to use ESG data in regular portfolio management activities. So mandates that currently exist that have been, in some cases, adjusted by some ESG variables, but without necessarily changing investment objectives or fund names or anything like that. And something this has created a bit of a phenomenon that uh, if you track several uh, uh, of these uh, funds that I'm thinking about, which you know, to, to, I think we're talking for the most part about hundreds of funds, uh, 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 very large in most cases, uh, individually, uh, uh, each one of them, what you will find is that many of these funds are uh, improving in terms of ESG ratings over time. Uh, so a very, very um, uh, interesting phenomenon. So on one side, the specific... ESG strategies, uh, uh, integration, thematic, and all of that that is happening. And on the other side, maybe a, a, a little bit towards um, more of a trend towards um, ESG integration and enablement in regular portfolio management activities. And again, this is something that in Canada, at least, is verified 
uh, uh, in a large number of companies. Uh, most companies, mid to larger size, have been doing something about that. Yes, that is a, a really interesting takeaway because it really suggests that ESG investing, um, probably from that kind of a niche uh, discipline, is starting to really permeate throughout all of the portfolio management process. So I think uh, with the, you know, I, I love your point about the ESG fund ratings of funds that are not necessarily dedicated to ESG discipline specifically is also that they're also improving. So I think that's a really important takeaway for anybody, um, any of the the listeners to understand that, that asset managers have to retool their portfolio management, uh, both kind of the databases, but also the, the, the talent that's running it to ensure that they, they can adopt that. So that moves from the manufacturing side. Let's move now to the distribution front lines. And, uh, you know, one of the fascinating um, ideas, and we uh, uh, we um, uh, spoke about it probably in our original um, a podcast um, with uh, Christopher Davis and um, uh, uh, kind of the research uh, suggesting that uh, we've got some great U.S. research, advisor research that we have been running for for um, a well over a decade in the U.S. and it shows a continued disconnect between the um, advisor uptake and interest in ESG investing at large, while um, a, a host of different kind of direct investor um, uh, surveys suggest that that, uh, that interest is on the rise. So, um, Carlos, what did you find about, uh, what did you find out about the distribution strategies adopted by retail asset managers to ensure that they can, you know, um, uh, incentivize or just uh, mobilize uh, their intermediaries uh, to to uh, bring these products uh, that clearly are sought out by many investors. Yeah. So, you know, this disconnect that you're making reference to uh, in the U.S. also exists in Canada. And uh, the data shows that. And the development of this, uh, 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 this process, these products, the enablement of ESG in products and the, uh, the sales strategy and, and all of that are showing that the disconnect is actually material. Uh, on one hand, you have an enormous proportion of investors and clients, north of 85% uh, for the most part, saying that the topic of ESG, ESG environmental issues in particular, social issues, of course, too. Governance, I think, is a bit of an afterthought for the client, the, the, the end client in general. But environmental, social are very important topics for clients. Now, the research and the facts uh, more recently are starting to show that um, many clients, while interested in the topic itself, are not necessarily aware that there are products addressing the financial products, addressing any of these. So that's, if you want, kind of one first disconnect. The other disconnect, of course, in many cases, is between clients and advisors. We're finding in Canada, and, and I think this is also the case from some of the data that we've seen, that in many cases, advisors are not necessarily um, very proactively uh, uh, offering the products to clients. And there might be one more than one thing happening at the same time in connection with this. One, for sure, something that we've heard directly in some cases from dealers is that uh, advisors 
may not feel entirely prepared to deal with the issue of uh, ESG. Uh, if you think that, you know, for example, some of the topics, I think, on the environmental side of things, maybe kind of cross the lines, right, beyond financials into environmental sciences and all of other things. I mean, there are different types of emissions. There are different you know, things to learn about the topic. That's you know, certainly one of the things that kind of uh, comes up. The other one is uh, very interesting. Um, the other one is that sometimes when advisors don't know clients extremely well, they might be reluctant to talk about this topic because they think that you know, maybe some of these issues cross the lines into ideological or political views. So not knowing exactly where they are in connection with the client, sometimes they might kind of refrain from bringing it up or, or something like that. The other thing that fund companies started to hear from advisors through the wholesaling networks, uh, from advisors and, uh, and dealers in general, is that you know, in many cases advisors will be, if anything, maybe confused about what the products are actually doing and how. Uh, advisors, uh, it seems, in, in many cases, look at, a, at an ESG product and they find that the products uh, invest in uh, uh, Exxon, in Shell, in BP, in, in many other kind of uh, oil companies. Just putting an, an example, oil companies could be anything else. And they wonder how is this possible that an ESG product contains this kind of investment. In many cases, it will seem that advisors might not be familiar with the integration type of strategies and so on. So there are quite a few wrinkles there that are expected to take some time, of course, to, um, uh, for companies to, uh, to go through, for advisors to go through, to learn uh, about all of these. In Canada, of course, you have the add-on of um, uh, some regulatory change shaping more recently the client focus reforms and a few other things that are uh, requiring and taking time from uh, dealers and advisors uh, in um, uh, dealing with and all of that. So it will seem that ESG almost comes on top of everything else uh, for advisors to you know kind of learn about and, and move forward and all of that. Now connected to all of these, something that we heard from um, uh, some asset managers was that some feedback from advisors in connection with all of these um, included that um, maybe highly focused thematic type of strategies were a much better and easier way to get started with ESG, that it was easier to say, okay, I'm investing uh, on, a, on a fund that um, invests in uh, aeolic uh, uh, energy, whatever it might be, rather than you know going with the the the, the full uh, um, uh, integration story and everything else connected to um, uh, to that so that's one one thing the other thing that also came up quite a lot was that some advisors um, uh, were under the impression and you know I'm not necessarily saying that this is entirely true but were under the impression that index based products with an ESG overlay were a lot easier to approach and understand that the in in that case like the almost like the the, the ESG uh, strategy was uh, like a screen on top of the index that make it easier to you know uh, uh, go for yes and no type of uh, belonging to the investment strategy or uh, or not was more like was more straightforward in terms of determining what the underlying investments will be. Yes, I find it uh, fascinating. You've brought up so many 
really nuanced points. Uh, one of the, the the points that you made, and I, I really appreciated uh, talking to a lot of advisors over over literally decades, is that um, they're still struggling to move off from that traditional investment focus, um, where you know uh, they are uh, very comfortable with discussing traditional investment strategies. Um, you know, um, modern portfolio theory, asset allocation, risk reward, etc. But when it comes to that nuance, and and you pointed out that in some cases, uh, bringing up this type of a product or a strategy will mean having a slightly different uh, dialogue with with the with the client, with the customer, and some of it, as you pointed out, will. You know, we'll we'll dig a bit deeper into the belief uh, system of the customer. So I think that it's a, it's probably um, a, not an easy stretch for many advisors. But yet, one would think that maybe those advisors that are able to um, uh, cultivate this type of a dialogue with their clients could be the ones who can really get in deep, if you will. You know, just deepen that relationship over time. Totally. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree with that. And I will tell you something else that I think uh, might be holding back some advisors. Um, something that is, if anything, kind of diminishing as a factor, but it's still there, which is that some advisors, probably the older advisors in the, um, uh, in the marketplace, maybe some of their clients too, uh, and, and as you know very well, the older advisors tend to be the ones with the larger books, generally. Um, but some of these advisors still seem to believe that uh, they need a little bit more proof for these strategies. They remember when before the financial crisis, uh, ESG in many cases was not doing particularly well in terms of performance. Um, we are coming, of course, from, um, you know, maybe, let's say, seven, eight years ago, I remember surveys um, uh, showing that uh, a, a very large number of advisors believed that there was a trade-off between performance and ESG. Maybe um, uh, those, um, uh, uh, those proportions of advisors are much lower these days. I'm, uh, I'm sure that's the case. We've, we've seen the data. The data is actually in the report and it's showing that that is declining, but it's still there. And there are some advisors, and I think, you know, this is a, a, a fairly valid point, at least in terms of expectations. There are some advisors uh, that um, more recently, when energy started to uh, trend again, uh, at some point, um, I don't know if we can say towards the end of the pandemic, but let's say mid-2021, towards the end of 2021, when energy started to trend um, uh, once again, there were some advisors that were wondering how these changing cycle, changing economic cycle, market cycle, will impact ESG investment performance. And there are some advisors out there, and this is something else that's been coming up through uh, the, the wholesaling uh, networks and uh, for the different fund companies and everything. Uh, they, they're still saying that they need a little bit more of a wait and see kind of approach to see how that will go. The other topic, of course, uh, uh, connected to all of these um, is that in some cases, and, and this is particularly true about energies and mining and a few other activities, uh, at a time when uh, an enormous amount of a uh, number of people are retiring uh, and you know moving to the payout phase and everything, we are finding extraordinarily high 
dividend rates on sectors that are by definition not the greenest, not uh, uh, you know the most environmental friendly. And uh, this is something else that is waiting, I think, waiting something in, in, in connection with the overall uh, adoption of, uh, of ESG, which is the need for income that, uh, well, in some cases might not be entirely easy to integrate in an ESG strategy. Yes, I think that's a really astute point about the, the perception and the reality of investment performance. Um, and again, I think to your earlier point, the more pervasive that integration of ESG factors, even within traditional portfolios, not necessarily thematically involved in ESG investing, the more that makes kind of becomes a prevalent practice, I think, the, the less that argument is going to really hold water. That said, I agree with you. There are many <laughs> advisors who have spent, you know, better part of 20 or 30 years um, thinking that was the case. So I think it, it's going to take some time. I also think there's probably a, a real good and underappreciated opportunity. Um, and we've heard some really great minds out there, like Dr. Henningstein at uh, Invesco, for example, uh, talk about the, the possibility of actually finding um, great alpha stories, you know, maybe the next uh, cutter of uh, the unicorns through uh, identifying those ESG leaders, you know, so technology, for example, that is going to be really um, uh, uh, on uh, on trend uh, for climate change or for for water, um, you know, all those things. I think that's that's really interesting. And I think we're very, very early on with those types of, you know, identification of those potential technologies or ideas or methodologies that that companies new issuers are going to bring to the market that we can invest in and and really kind of run run with those ESG unicorns I think those are still to come right um, Carlos, uh, just to wrap it up, and I'm, um, I am uh, uh, trying to watch our time, I did want to ask you the final question because, again, um, the study, um, uh, the, the inaugural issue is, is really uh, a couple of books, I would say. Um, the second um, uh, part um, is dedicated to tracking developments in retail investment um, uh, fund worlds um, uh, with respect to ESG around the world. You are covering five different regions, um, uh, the US, Canada, uh, uh, Europe, uh, Australia, and what am I missing, Asia. Carlos? Asia. Um, uh, so uh, do you have any kind of parting thoughts as to um, uh, similarities or uh, differences uh, between uh, those regions in terms of the penetration of ESG mandates in the retail market and success thereof, uh, etc.? You know, as you said very well, the, the report, the second part of the report covers those uh, market reviews mutual funds, ETFs, the size of these markets, product development, companies, and uh, and all of that. Of course, uh, Europe is way ahead of uh, everybody else. Uh, it's a jurisdiction where, you know, we've seen a lot of ESG activity starting uh, uh, decades ago, but for the most part in the last uh, uh, 12 to 15 years, the process of ESG um, uh, adoption and development has uh, accelerated. 
uh, over there. So in, in the case of, um, uh, for the most part, the US, Australia, and uh, Canada, you see that pretty much at the same time, uh, with a bit of an acceleration during the pandemic, of course, um, these markets are uh, seeing a wave of developments con um, uh, connected to all of these. Now, something interesting that I think the, the report seems to reveal, and this is something else that came up uh, as we were talking to, um, uh, to fund companies um, uh, uh, in Canada and beyond. We, we talked to some American companies too and, uh, and everything. Um, the, the development cycle for everything ESG seems to be very global in nature. There's a huge convergence in terms of what different companies are doing globally uh, in terms of uh, ESG enablement and adoption and, uh, and all of that. And it's actually interesting because it happened in Canada, something very particular happened. Uh, probably it happened in the US too, but, but I was not tracking that, that closely. But I can tell you about the Canadian market. Uh, while uh, fund managers were introducing products in ESG categories, of course, in many cases, uh, before doing that, they were establishing uh, a, a, a series of policies in terms of how to go about that. And uh, uh, they were working with the, the, the portfolio managers, of course, in, in terms of enabling the mandates, finding data providers, right? There, there were many, many things that needed doing before a product could be launched. Um, on the regulatory side, uh, in many cases, managers and following, of course, the discussion that was taking place at that time in IOSCO, uh, the forum where all the um, global regulators come together, they were not only following the discussion in IOSCO, but in many cases, they were basing their decisions off uh, the best policies that they could find globally, European taxonomies. Um, uh, uh, if anything, I, I would suggest um, uh, regulations that were more advanced than whatever was available here, which is which was at the time very, very little. Of course, you know the story. IOSCO came up with a series of papers, and then multiple regulators, including the Canadian regulators, came up with guidance for that. By the time that that happened, a lot of the products were already in the marketplace and available. And most of the companies behind these products, the companies that we uh, talked to in Canada, for the most part, I would say, were very, very worried about being on site with whatever the regulators were going to introduce in terms of guidance and everything. Of course, uh, someone actually put it uh, uh, in, in a kind of a funny way saying, look, you can't get started uh, with an ESG product and policies and all of that and be singled out as a greenwasher by the regulators, right? It's a, the reputational issues, if anything, connected to that mean that you have to get it totally right. There's only one pathway, and that pathway is to get it right. So um, I think that that also contributed maybe to these um, uh, conversions that we saw from, from day one, really, on the, on the product pipeline in connection with uh, what's available out there. And for sure, in the case of the, uh, the US, uh, in the case of Canada, of course, uh, asset managers were trying to learn from what others have already done, uh, particularly in Europe. In many cases, of course, they were connecting with, uh, you know, in, in the case of very large global organizations where so they were connecting with their partners there. 
In many cases, they were uh, uh, connecting with uh, uh, companies that they knew or uh, executives that they knew. Or in many cases, of course, as we uh, know, they were reviewing uh, uh, products that were available in those jurisdictions to see what was the most advanced uh, thing that was already available in the marketplace and try to not to avoid if anything mistakes that might have been made earlier by uh, by others in uh, particularly in Europe. Thank you, Carlos. Um, yes, I I hear you. This this idea of number one, uh, uh, especially in the ESG investing context. Um, uh, trust being the currency of asset management, I think uh, very, very important. And it's uh, interesting just how quickly the best practices appear to be adopted, even in those jurisdictions that did not had at the time had not yet had these um, these uh, uh, kind of sustainable investing or ESG uh, rules uh, regulatory regulations in place. So that's um, and the other comment that you made is really an observation of the asset management business as we um, at ISS Market Intelligence observe it. This is becoming such a globalized business. So no wonder ESG investing uh, in the, in that context is uh, the same, but so is really the the kind of the the, the overall approach to asset management, productization, uh, portfolio management science, and so on and so on. And ESG investing appears to be more correlated than ever or kind of mirroring, trends mirroring from one jurisdiction to another. So Carlos, uh, we are out of time. This is really, uh, I know this is a topic that is a river and we could go on uh, and on. And um, I will just have to say this, that this report I know was um, a just a typical investor economics, uh, uh, a bit of a labor of love. I know it was, uh, Carlos, what, two, almost two years in the making before the report actually uh, got wrapped up. Um, we felt we needed to put in the work, and I know your team did just an, a tremendous uh, work at that, with uh, support from, IS, um, from our own ISS ESG colleagues, both in the uh, data and research and then um, the ISS ESG uh, business um, who helped us understand a lot of things and connected us to many people around the world. So with that, Carlos, thank you very much for sharing sharing your thoughts on this um, important topic of ESG investing in the retail fund context. Um, we will uh, touch base with you as uh, more reports uh, uh, are issued in uh, the um, ESG advisory service. Uh, to all of our listeners, um, thank you very much for um, uh, tuning in to our second um, uh, um, uh, episode um, of our My Talk podcast. Um, uh, let's uh, get back together in a few weeks. Um, as you know, we continue to uh, be passionate about um, the uh, retail financial services business, and we will always find some exciting topics. Um, ones that we, we can support with some solid facts and data and analysis to discuss in the future. So um, it's not a goodbye. It's uh, we'll hear each other in a few weeks. Thank you very much.